The year is 1998. I'm Dave. I'm Douglas. And this is My Marvelous Year. Welcome to My Marvelous Year. This is 1998, Part 3. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. You are listening to the My Marvelous Year Reading Club and podcast where we go through the history of Marvel Comics from its origins to today. We've made it all the way to 1998. And today is going to be a very, it's an oddball kind of hodgepodge selection of issues, but they're all very interesting. You can find all of the comics that we discuss here on this curated dive through Marvel history in the show notes. Uh, you can also, if you want to get the full spreadsheet for everything that we're going to be listening to uh, and reading about, you can always find it in the show notes for free. Otherwise, you can back us for as little as $1 a month over on patreon.com slash year. And uh, through that listener support, you get access to the full spreadsheet all the way through every year of Marvel Comics history that we put together. So again, I'm Dave. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by an awesome guest uh, we're going to be talking about these comics with, Eisner-winning author of all of the Marvels. It's Douglas Wolk. How are you doing? Good. Glad to be here. Yeah, I think you are the first Eisner-winning guest we've had on the show, <laughs> which is cool. I'm, I'm sorry um, to break your perfect record. I know, right? It was a great streak, uh, <laughs> but we finally upgraded here for 1998 Part 3. Um, so this one, I'm really excited to talk about with you because, uh, so we're going to talk Mutant X, we're going to talk A Next, so two alternate reality kind of stories. We're going to read the first three issues of those, and then we read a one-shot, Blade Crescent City Blues, and uh, and then three issues that are not in Marvel Limited. So normally we try to do all the issues we cover here, we try to make them available through Marvel Limited, right? So people can play along. It's the easiest way to do so, certainly with a a huge swath of Marvel history. But we did have to add three issues per your recommendation here, a Man-Thing series by J.M. DeMatteis and Liam Sharp. Uh, This is part of a short-lived, very short-lived, Strange Tales imprint. So we can talk a little bit about that. But I, I recommend people... Try to dig up some of these back issues, and we can talk about this as we get there. I, I actually pulled, I was literally at C2E2 yesterday, and I found a copy of, of the Man-Thing run, and I was like, oh, amazing. I'm going to read this in print as it was intended, and, uh, and it's a good time. It's a good time. But that's what we're talking about today. Let's start with Mutant X. Doug, had you read, I, I, I assume, yes, based on all the Marvels, I guess by my... You know, I should assume that you've read these before. Um, what is your overall opinion of and and thoughts about the Mutant X alternate reality? Mutant X was a really interesting idea, and I don't know that the execution ever quite lived up to how clever the idea was. Uh, yeah. But the idea we should we should explain for the benefit of folks at home. Uh, Mutant X is technically a part of the big 616 Marvel story because it stars the 616 version of Alex Summers' Havoc. And otherwise, not so much. 
the idea is that at the end of the X-Factor series, uh, he was apparently killed, but actually sent into this alternate universe and where everything was a little bit different. And clearly it's inspired in some ways by how successful uh, you know the Age of Apocalypse had been before. Like this is another kind of right. like mutant thrown into alternate reality kind of thing. But also it's, it is a remix of the Marvel Universe as we know it, where everything is somehow different and... Very cleverly, there is a ton of backstory going on that Alex is completely unaware of, and he's completely oblivious to, and he is, in this reality, the uh, partner, spouse of uh, Marvel Woman, who is Madeline Pryor, the Mr. Sinister-created clone of Jean Grey, uh, with whom he has difficult dealings to this day, um, as we saw in Hellions last year. So right. the idea of like, you know, I am now in a reality that is like mine in a lot of ways and totally unlike mine in a lot of ways. And I'm really unprepared for this. Like, that's a strong premise. Mm-hmm. That is the, you know, I a stranger and afraid in the world I never made thing that the Howard the Duck, except instead of like everyone is a, is a talking hairless ape instead of a duck. Um, Alex is our POV character and he's a POV character who like potentially a reader picking up the first issue of a new series, oh, this has something with X-Men, I should read that, is just thrown in at the deep end. Uh, now, Mutant X was apparently originally supposed to be a year-long limited series, um, and at the end of which, maybe it would go back to being X-Factor, or who, who knows what was going to happen. But uh, it was surprisingly popular, and it ended up running more than 30 series and some annuals and a special. And then at the end of its run... Uh, Fox started doing a TV series called Mutant X that had nothing to do with the comic that caused some <laughs> some friction with Marvel too, but that's a whole other yeah. story. Yeah, that is fascinating. Yeah, so that's great background. So so Mutant X here is written by Howard Mackey. We got pencils by Todd Rainey. Uh, the inks are consistent. We got Howard Mackey writing the whole thing, and the inks are all by Andrew Papoy. Um, we got Walden Wong assists on issue one. Uh, yeah, I, it's 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 never as good for me certainly as like age of apocalypse but as alternate x realities go it's a very fun premise and i think mackie and the creative team like they dive in pretty pretty wholesale you know like they're invested it seems in this world they're having fun with it um i mean i think the simplest the simplest twist on the alternate reality is basically like it's the x-men that we know in a lot of ways but what if Havoc was one of the original five instead of Cyclops, right? What if he was the child who was sort of rescued and and then picked up by Professor X? And then what what Mackie and the team do, which is very fun, is they pull from X Men history and continuity and various points. Like for like, I think the the example that maybe has the longest legs because this character has appeared in more recent Marvel stories is Bloodstorm which is Laura Monroe's storm. But as if, you know, when she goes up against Dracula in the classic 80s Claremont version of the story, um, she actually gets bitten and she becomes a vampire, right? So you have a version of storm that is in fact a vampire and she's kind of got a lot of mystery and secrets and, and some sort of thing going on with a version of Cape Pride and Forge. Um, you mentioned Madeline Pryor taking over as Marvel Woman instead of Jean Grey. And then you do also have the uh, the rest of the original five 
as the primary cast here. They call themselves the six, right? Because you have the original five plus Storm, essentially. But you have Iceman, who becomes Bob Drake. What's interesting about <laughs> all these characters, in fact, is that the worst thing that ever happened to any of them in earlier comics stuck. Yeah, yeah. So you were saying Iceman, uh, who you know has been transformed by Loki into this super powerful ice creature and anything that he touches turns to ice. Right. Uh, we have the beast beast who uh, has now become, I guess, the brute. And uh, it's like that thing early in X-Factor where he uh, like made himself stronger, but also dumber. Uh, mm-hmm. And that has stuck with him. And he's also evolved gills and stuff. Um, we have uh, Angel, who is now uh, now calling himself the Fallen because he's been turned into Archangel and stayed that way. Um, so yeah, that's that's the gist of it. Yeah, it's a really good way to put it, right? It is sort. Of, it, it's funny because it is. It's all like, okay, what if the the worst moments happen to these characters? And it, it's kind of a dark twist, but it's not really a super dark alternate reality, right? I would say actually, as the world goes, it's certainly more put together and less um, apocalyptic than, you know, no pun intended, the Age of Apocalypse, right? Like, like the world is still generally formed. You have a Fantastic Four unit. It's a world of heroes. You know, a Fantastic Four are a little different. They weren't exposed to, to cosmic rays the same way, right? So they, But they're still heroes in their way uh, until they're not, right? And certain things happen. Um, you have Spider-Man, who just has, you know, it's as if the, the many-arm saga, the six-arm saga, you know, that lasted, but he's still otherwise heroic. Um, and you get variants in characters and and such, but it's not. It's definitely not a purely dark alternate reality. Um, there are things that are worse as as it progresses. Uh, and Madeline Pryor's history with Inferno, with the goblins, with the demons, right? Becoming the Goblin Queen that obviously plays a big role here as well, because her and Havoc have a son as well. That's the other piece of this. Is in this reality the Havoc that she knew, Alex Summers? They have a son named Scotty course owed to scott summers um and and he plays a major role kind of franklin richards-esque in terms of being able to see through yeah see through the um you know the the ruse of alex who's who's literally trying to tell people so that's the thing about alex summers here is he's like he shows up he awakens in this alternate reality he's trying to tell everyone he's like i'm not from here and everyone's like oh no he's sick (laughs) like oh no he he drank too much you know he he drowned and he he got too much water and he, he nobody believes him essentially, is the deal. So he just kind of starts rolling with it um, and and living in this and trying to find a way through. The first 12... So I actually read... So we had the first three issues on the list. I read all the way through the first 12 issues just to see that sort of first arc. You can see how it could have and, and would have ended with 12 issues. I mean, it's a pretty complete narrative arc, I think. And then the series did well, so they kept going. Not my favorite x-men alternate reality but like a pretty good time and as someone who's not a massive havoc fan or anything you know i was pretty pleasantly surprised uh by how much i enjoyed this yeah um have you gotten to read like hellions the the zeb wells series last year i i love hellions yes absolutely yeah i love that too and you can see the effects of this in that like Mm. alex is a guy who's been through a lot and he's lost a lot and he's lost some of the same things over and over and this is this is part of that this is part of his story yeah and i do always appreciate you know alex summers as um not the antithesis 
of Scott, but sort of like just like, hey, here's another very similar but but different POV. Whereas instead of being, you know, the perfect leader, right, and the perfect strategist, you have kind of the screw up brother, right? He makes mistakes. He leads with more emotion. Um, he gets caught in these weird situations. He's <laughs> he loves following around Madeline Pryor, right? Whatever it is, like Alex Summers makes mistakes, and he and he kind of you do get a different. I mean, purely that twist alone of what if it was Alex instead of Scott actually has interesting ramifications. Um, and, and that's kind of something I think writers have played with with the characters, whether it's here, whether it's Uncanny Avengers, um, you know, in the Marvel Now era. And then, like you mentioned, with Hellions, where uh, it's it's Alex has really been through some stuff <laughs> yeah, and is having a hard time, you know. Um, but yeah, it's it's pretty good. I recommend checking this out. I, I had a good time reading Mutant X. I like this alternate reality. I can see why creators would want to play with this alternate reality again, um, especially characters like a Bloodstorm, like Marvel Woman, a la Madeline Pryor. Um, I don't know that anything else really grabbed me as far as like being super inventive in this alternate reality. Was there anything else for you where you're like, oh, that's a really clever Marvel detail? Yeah, not not... Not really. It, it's it's nicely planned as far as it goes as a small scale story. I'm yeah. really surprised that it went on as long as it did, and I think it might actually be better remembered if it had like left them wanting more. Yeah, yeah. Thirty plus issues is is kind of hard to fathom. Um, if it had gone out in twelve, I do feel like I'd be like, everybody should check this out, read the whole thing. But as it stands, it's like, yeah, that's that's a lot. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> actually. And it doesn't feel like it has the legs. Um, but yeah, through the first three issues, and definitely I would say keep it on. You know, you could you could keep reading through the first 12. It gets a little repetitive, I think. Um, but, it, but it's definitely not the guiltiest. And I did prefer it, I would say, to the alternate reality story we read next, which is A-Next. Um, so yeah. A-Next is the, <laughs> A-Next is the Spider-Girl universe. So we actually read Spider-Girl on our last episode. Uh, Tom DeFalco, Ron Friends. Uh, that creation we enjoyed quite a bit. I think that what if into the Spider-Girl launch, just looking at an alternate reality where Peter and MJ have a daughter, made a Parker, and she is becoming Spider-Girl, you know, in and of herself. This is that universe, right? This is the formation of an Avengers team in that universe. It is very much proto-Young Avengers, you know? It is, it is ve- which I appreciate the idea I appreciate trying to use an alternate universe to do legacy heroes because this roster is pretty strange. It's pretty different um, and, and sometimes kind of interesting. But the actual content uh, is is very old-fashioned for 1998, I think, uh, and it never quite hooked me i don't know what do you what do you think about these ones hey next so the i i am i am not crazy about the the whole mc2 universe the uh tom yeah. defalco ron friends thing the idea was like let's do a little like sub sub imprint that will be you know if things had uh, if time had kept going since the beginning of the marvel universe and also if we did everything just like Stan and Jack would have done it. Mm. And that, I think, is where this falls over. Because Tom DeFalco can do a decent sort of Stanley voice impression, and Ron Friends can do a decent kind of sub-Kirby, sub-Ditko kind of, okay, uh, 
Salbusema ish, if this is the the evolution of 60s style Marvel. And the two of them work really well together. They have been doing stuff together for decades and decades. And it's just a retro exercise with different characters. Like yeah. there there's there is stuff about that kind of 60s Marvel voice that doesn't work that they just follow slavishly and mm. um the, they have they have their pet characters like we have the son of thunderstrike like thunderstrike being the sort of uh, second tier thor who they had done some comics about a few years earlier um the one kind of really clever idea is okay the son of the juggernaut like that's that's not somebody you're going to think of as like, let's make this guy a superhero. And that's kind of, that's a fun idea, but there's the tone of it is so like, we're going to do it just like they did, you know, 30 years ago. And I, those 30 year old comics at the time, you know, 50, 55, 60 years old now, they're still right there on the shelf. They're still right there. If I need them, I don't need any more new comics that are just like them. Um, yep. And that's 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 frustrating. They they they're playing with a lot of those toys. Um, there's a, you know a a new Cree Sentry and a new Captain Marvel type of the green and white costume. That did anybody else have nostalgia for the green and white Captain Marvel? I kind of <laughs> right. I'm, I'm kind of surprised about that. Um, yeah. There's a new Defenders, and there's a new Avengers-Defenders war. And, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm going to repeat that. There's a new Avengers, there's a new Avengers-Defenders war. And, like, why why do that again when you can do something new? You compared it to Young Avengers, and Young Avengers, like, the characters are... They are legacy characters. They are characters who have families and have history, but they feel new. They feel mm -hmm. of their moment. And these don't. They feel of a moment three decades earlier. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I do also agree that J2 <laughs> so is, is definitely like the most fun. And it's but it's also the most oddball, right? Because Juggernaut is not an Avenger, right? There's no there's no Avengers history right. there. So then you have this child actually, fifteen year old Zane Yama. Um, the son of Cain, Zane, <laughs> right? And uh, and but the fact that he's a minor, so you get this sort of Shazam, Billy Batson thing going on with the Juggernaut armor on the Avengers. You know, the team kind of figures out that like, oh, he's a kid as this thing progresses, which explains some of his sort of juvenile enthusiasm and whatnot. Um, that's actually a pretty fun character. That's a decent time. Uh, I, I yeah, I, I don't know that it's a roster problem so much as it is a presentation problem because I do think yeah. like. You know, the characters, like you mentioned, this Avengers unit, you have Mainframe, who appears to be sort of an Iron Man. It goes on to be revealed that essentially he's a sentient AI, you know, written by Tony Stark. He's kind of vision-y, right, in a lot of ways. Um, you have a uh, daughter of Scott Lang, Cassandra Lang, who, of course, young Avengers fans, like we know, Cassie Lang. Um, so she actually gets an early role here as Stinger. And then, like you mentioned already, Kevin Masterson. It, which is funny because Thunderstrike's already a legacy character, but we actually get the son of the original Thunderstrike as our sort of Thor variant in this unit. But yeah, everything is just um, it is it is written with such uh, admiration for 
the original 60s era. You get you get a decent chunk of that in the late 90s from Marvel. I think the Busey Act written Untold Tales of Spider-Man is a good example as well of of series that like, you know, you're kind of having that rebound moment of reaction to how far things went towards the image side and and the image revolution of the early 90s and you have creators coming back around now especially you know post onslaught post bankruptcy post heroes reborn kind of trying to say like oh let's get back to the way things were and sometimes that that idea and that that inspiration works great because it means trying to capture the style and the spirit of what fans already liked about these characters and then other times it becomes like you said too much of a um, a replica of a, you know an inferior replica of something that, like you said, it's like we already have those stories. I like them; they're great. I can read them whenever I want. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I don't need them retold like basically the same way. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I'm I'm pretty down on the MC two. Um, sorry, you, go ahead. No, no, but that's I was just just concurrent. Yeah, I and I I do I definitely liked Spider Girl a lot more. I don't know how you feel about. Um, the Spider-Girl series, which which is another thing that, like, it runs for a remarkably long time. I mean, that series yeah. goes until, I think, 2006. It's like 60 issues. Um, I, I appreciate what DeFalco and company are, are doing uh, with these sort of alternate reality legacy characters. I think it is it has a place, you know, and it's kind of fun to, to get to do that. I just think the Mayday Parker stuff, something about it works a lot better. And it, it, I think, too, it also it captures a little more effectively... I think the most appealing idea of this MC2 verse for me, which is what if we did let these characters grow up, right? It's the thing that obviously Marvel time so consistently prevents. Um, but like seeing dad Spider-Man is actually pretty fun because we never get that. Otherwise he's perpetually has right. to be kept teenage college years. Um, and, and actually getting that is cool. I, I don't know that you really get those moments in Avengers as much, you know? Yeah, uh, seeing, you know, Submariner and Doctor Strange with a little more facial hair, like, no, no, that's fine. That's fine. I didn't need that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. Yeah, and Hulk's just kind of, Bruce Banner wants to be done with it. It's like, this This feels like it could be any time, you know, he, he's yeah. constantly going through that phase. Um, so, yeah, I'm not crazy about it. It does go, I think this one goes for 12 issues, and then yeah. it is done. Um, there is like a J2, I don't know if it's a series, I think it's just a one shot. I don't know if there's more of that. Um, I think there's, I think there's a little more J2. There's, there's is there okay J two ran for a little while yeah 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 so it, it is interesting too to see you know I mentioned being proto Young Avengers it is also a little proto Ultimate Universe you know you're seeing these different types of attempts to recapture the magic and kind of relaunch Marvel but all of them are siloed and not quite they're not quite you know Marvel wholly investing in them yet yeah so all right next on the list uh, so th those are the two alternate realities I definitely would say of the two I would recommend checking out Mutant X I think it's it's better yeah. executed. I think it's more interesting. It also is pretty far under the radar, you know, I think as X-Men things are considered. Um, so it is kind of this nice little deep cut that is a pretty good time. A next, personally, I would skip. If you really love Spider-Girl and you, like, got to see more of that universe, um, dive in. You know, give it a look. But I, I think you'll know after the first issue whether you want to read that much dialogue again <laughs> and whether you want to read that many boxes. <laughs> um, okay, so the next issue, speaking of a lot of text is Blade Crescent City Blues. This is an oversized one-shot. Uh, this was, again, 1998. So this is this comes out, I think it's cover dated March. It's written by Christopher yeah. Golden. We got Pencils by Gene Colan, the return of Gene Colan to Blade. 
uh, inks by Mark Pennington, colors by Joe Andriani, letters by Bill Oakley. So 1998 is the year of Blade, but the movie doesn't come out until later in the year. Um, I think it's like November, maybe. So it's not... The movie's not out. Nobody quite knows what it's going to be yet, right, as this comic comes out. Um, So it's hard to say how related or unrelated they are. But I did think, you know, because the movie comes out this year, we think of 1998 as being a Blade year. It is interesting to see what Marvel's doing with Blade comics. Because, again, like post-Tuma Dracula, Blade's comics history is incredibly scattered. (laughs) Like, it is is super inconsistent. At this point, I think he, he had not appeared anywhere in close to three years. Um, like yeah. he hadn't appeared in anything, and now there's a movie coming out. Oh, oh, we have this. We have this character who's going to be. We should publish a Blade comic, shouldn't? <laughs> right, not the worst idea. Uh, Douglas, what did you think of Crescent City Blues? Did you enjoy this? Uh, do, you, do you like? I guess do you like kind of the the Blade arc? Like, do you wish he got more at bats? Uh, you know, I'm happy to see Blade turn up when he shows up. Um. I don't super miss him when he's away, but when I see him mm-hmm. again, it's like, oh, it's Blade. I like him. I mean, he he shows up originally. He is a Tomb of Dracula supporting character. Um, he's a knockoff of Shaft. Like, that's the joke. Except instead of Shaft, he's Blade. And instead of being a general badass, he is a badass who specifically goes after vampires. Um, and he's he's a supporting character all the way. Uh, he shows up in Night Stalkers a few years before this. He shows up in, in a few contexts like that, but he's he's the character you add when you want something that is flavored a little strangely. Like when you when you know the the same kind of role he ends up playing in Mighty Avengers way down way down the line when like you have this mysterious character like who could it be? Oh it's Blade. Okay. Um, that said, like getting Gene Colan to draw this Gene Colan is the artist who co-created Blade like a solid 25 years plus before this. And it's just Gene Colan doing his Gene Colan thing and drawing weirdly shaped panels and drawing everything dissolving into mist. And who cares about the plot, you know? Um, mm-hmm. It is Blade and Deacon Frost and Marie Laveau bopping around New Orleans and Hannibal King shows up because, you know, we, we got to have him. And uh, I, was, I was pleased to see... Um, you know, the daughter of Simon Garth, the zombie. It was like, oh, there's a woman whose last name is Garth. I bet she's Simon Garth, the zombie's daughter, mm-hmm. which indeed she turns out to be in the final panel of the story. Um, and that, that's, you know, that is a nice callback to the rest of Marvel's horror history. Oh, and, you know, Brother Voodoo shows up for a while. I can't really make a lot of sense of the plot, but that's what happens when you have Gene Colan drawing a story. Like, the plot is never, ever the point. It is mm-hmm. atmosphere, 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 and 40 solid pages of atmosphere. Mm-hmm. I'm into it. Yeah, yeah. It's a. I had a pretty good time with this one, honestly, because I, you know, I again, like you said, we don't get a ton of Blade, and I'm not a huge Midnight Suns fan, you know, necessarily. Like, I like the vibe of it, and I like the idea of it, but actually sitting and sort of binging, you know, those all those comics coming out from, like, 93 through 95 has never been my jam. Um, so, yeah, having Gene Colan back on board, getting kind of a retro, you know, um, tale through the, the Marvel chillers and horror 70s, you know, characters, right? Like you said, you get... Your blade, you get Hannibal King, the the detective, the vampire detective. You get Brother Voodoo. Um, everything's set in New Orleans, right? So there's ton of ton of voodoo references and these sorts of things. It's a it's kind of a crime noir story, 
You know, and I, I wish, like, there's a version of this where um, Christopher Golden, like, if he kind of recognized that, like, you know, less is more <laughs> with this, right. with Crime War, with, with, with Blade, and specifically with Gene Colan, you know, where it's like, less is more here. Like, I don't need to over-explain the plot. There's a version of this that could be excellent. Um, I don't think it gets there, but it is pretty entertaining. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I enjoyed hanging out in this world with these characters for one issue. Like, I don't need yeah. an ongoing. Um, it's it's So the villain here is Deacon Frost. And because we haven't talked about Blade a heck of a lot, so, like, Deacon Frost is the vampiric scientist businessman, <laughs> essentially, who uh, basically is responsible for Blade. And that gets explained here as sort of a, a retro origin. Um, he killed Blade's mother. That is sort of why Blade is you know, part vampire, but can, you know, he's the daywalker, right? And, and also has a mission to kill all vampires, but he, like, he really wants to kill Deacon Frost, right? That's his guy, right? That's his arch enemy, right. um, as told through this story. Um, so you get that connection, but, you know, again, like, uh, there's a handful of references to stuff that has occurred in, in Midnight Suns and previous Blade stories. You can roll with it pretty easily, even if you haven't read those, I would say. Um, yeah. Like you said, Douglas, like, the plot is not, the main point <laughs> the main yeah. point is vibes and gene colon art and hanging out and I, and I gotta say for being 20 plus years later you know after the debut of blade and all the tomb of dracula stuff like this is a good looking comic um it's it's yeah. kind of fun hanging out in those mists like you said for for 40 pages or whatever it is and gene colon had been drawing comics a really long time like he was a comics veteran at the point when he started uh, working for marvel in the early 60s when he started working for marvel in the early 60s sometimes under the pseudonym adam austin um he had been drawing stuff for uh, something like 50 years at this point like he was he was active uh, i think uh his last comic was uh, captain america 601 which was I want to say sometime around like 2011, like mm. he had a massive, massive career in comics and he, he never lost his touch and he kind of gained his touch working with Stanley in the sixties. Like Stanley is the person who encouraged him to take all of his tendencies toward abstraction, to take all of his tendencies toward like just giving us atmosphere and not trying to render every little detail. Uh, and you can see him loosen up and become himself so much over the course of the 60s. Yeah. Uh, Colin is one of those artists who, when he was interviewed about working with Stan Lee, had really nothing but good things to say, which is interesting because, you know, there are artists who hold a grudge and then there's an artist where, uh, uh, like, there's an interview I saw with Colin where he was like, oh, Stan was wonderful. Like, that guy couldn't draw a line, but he actually taught me a lot about art. Mm. That's fascinating, yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, for sure. No, it is pretty cool. No, and and this this stuff looks good. I I find um I find Blade's progression, you know, kind of as the year goes on, but then also as you know, the Marvel kind of realizes like, oh, there's a movie out, and it's like it's pretty good. <laughs> like people dig it. Um, interesting. Over the next couple of years, like if you're a Blade fan, there's another one shot that comes out on the heels of this, and then actually there is like an incredibly short lived blade series that launches as part of the strange tales imprint that we're going to talk about next mm -hmm. um it was to be written by don mcgregor but i think only like two or three issues ever came out um and don yeah. mcgregor for those who who maybe don't remember uh, he's the writer of the the panther's rage um 
you know, the jungle action issues that we loved in the 70s, right? Some of the some of the best stuff of that era. Um, but yeah, the series is super short-lived, as a lot of Strange Tales wound up being. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that imprint is is lost to the, uh, to the you know, the changes of the tides here with Marvel. Um, did you have any final uh, Blade Crescent City Blues thoughts before we move on to Man-Thing? No, I'm I'm excited to talk about the bizarre case that is the 1998 Man Thing series. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Why don't you kick us off? Because there's a lot of really interesting sort of side history that goes with this, and then also a pretty good comic on top of it. So, so yeah. what's your what's your history with this book, and what was it like revisiting it? So this is a beautiful, beautiful series uh, written by Jam Dematis, drawn by Liam Sharp. Both of them, like, at the absolute top of their game, uh, it is Jam Dematis doing the kind of cosmic, metaphysical, investigatory thing that he had been doing in Moonshadow and Seekers into the Mystery uh, that he had hinted at in his Defenders run, which gets recapitulated a lot here. Liam Sharp, who had cut his teeth doing, like, I think, Bloodseed, part of the Marvel UK line, which was not that great, but who was interested in sort of the visual equivalent of what in music we would call extended technique, like doing stuff that uh, in not like Bill Sienkiewicz, but in the same way that Bill Sienkiewicz would do stuff that didn't look comics-ish and just test test the boundaries of what you could do in comics art. Um, yeah. And it has never been collected, and there's a very good reason why it has never been collected, which is that it is a 13-part serial, and Marvel published parts 1 through 10 and 13. Uh, (laughs) And parts 11 and 12 may or may not ever have been written or drawn. Uh, This Man-Thing series starts uh, as part of the Strange Tales imprint, um, alongside that short-lived Blade series, alongside, uh, there's like a cloak and dagger one-shot, I think. Uh, and alongside a uh, Werewolf by Night series by Paul Jenkins and Leonardo Manco. Yeah. And they, this is 1998. Uh, like Marvel's coming out of bankruptcy, and there's some, the, the distribution landscape is condensing. There's a ton of comics out there. It kind of gets lost in the shuffle. It never really gets a lot of attention. Uh, it is canceled after eight issues, but after eight issues, Marvel announces that they're going to do a new Strange Tales, which will be a double-sized, ongoing thing that will be half Man-Thing and half the Werewolf by Night series. And they're like, no, it's actually going to be a four-issue miniseries to kind of wrap up both of those series. And then they published the first two of those, and then they never published the third or fourth issue. And then the summer after that, uh, Dematis writes and Sharp draws part of a Peter Parker Spider-Man annual guest starring man thing that kind of wraps up the story, but also refers to the stuff in the two unpublished parts as having happened. So that, that, yeah. that happened somewhere, and maybe someday we'll get to tell you the story behind it, and yeah. then they never do. Um, so it, it is, I think I, I tweeted about it like a year ago, and I was like, this is awesome. And Jam DeMattis was like, yeah, I had the best time working with Liam Sharp on that. It's mm. so cool looking, and it's, it, it is a thing that you can find if you dig around back issue bins. Yeah, yeah, like I said, I got a, I got a copy for a dollar. 
yesterday at Six Weeks, the first issue, and I was like, hell yeah, this rules. Um, So, yeah, so that's some great backstory and some history. I I find, so I guess two things I want to kick off with. So one, I want to talk a little bit about the Strange Tales imprint and kind of how it's Marvel's clear attempt to do a Vertigo comics, right? So we talk about that a little bit. Um, But the first thing I want to say is one thing I have been most impressed by and has definitely made the, the biggest impression on me as we've gone through the Marvel comics of the 90s is J.M.D. Mateus has all these books where he shows up, d- leaves behind like a really great run that has been lost to the shadows of time, essentially, in terms of like the Marvel canon and the Marvel collections. There are so many of these instances where, because we, and I've talked about this a number of times now, but like there's a Moon Knight series where he shows up with, oh, who is it? Maybe Ron Garney. Um, for, for four or five issues. It's called Scarlet Redemption, I think. And it's like in the middle of the Mark Spector Moon Knight run. It's great. It's really good. It's it's a Craven's Last Hunt kind of style story, as so much of this is, just in terms of the psychology and, and sort of the horror and the mystical nature of all these stories. Um, but it's really good. And then, you know, we just read some Doctor Strange Sorcerer Supreme. Same thing. Very short run. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. but, it's, but it's quite good. And then this Man-Thing one in particular is is even more lost to time because of everything you just mentioned it being this publication continuity quagmire that has literally never been finished um and then also it's part of this horror imprint that is totally lost to the gap years between heroes reborn and marvel knights right like this i think if these books are getting solicited a year later they're probably a part of marvel knights and they probably have a decent fandom (laughs) that is supporting them right but as it stands it's like just a little too early um it's like i said this whole strange tales imprint it's saying let's take some of our horror characters some of our lesser known characters let's try to do vertigo style comics now vertigo comics officially became an imprint in 1993 um but many of the series that we think of with vertigo were already had already run or in some cases finished like with Alan Moore's saga the swamp thing and kind of retroactively became vertigo right but that's you know on the dc side you have doom patrol you have hellblazer you have sandman of course being probably the biggest of the bunch you can see those influences in spades here definitely uh in this this man thing issue it is very cerebral it is very abstract um Dematis and liam sharp are not holding your hand <laughs> they are not holding your hand one bit getting you through this book uh it is it will cut scenes rapidly it is artistically um about expression like you said and less about you know that that literal sort of here's what is happening um and then on top of all that on top of all that demandis is actually playing with you know early stage man thing history with the wife of ted salas now it's often Unlike with Swamp Thing, because a lot of Swamp Thing stories become Alec Collins stories, or at least they feel like they have to address the anatomy lesson in the room, right? Um, With Man Thing, Ted Salas quickly falls to the wayside. Like by the Gerber run with Adventures into Fear, it becomes this really interesting early proto sort of Vertigo style thing where it's like, hey, we can tell stories about the world and just have this Man Thing creature lumbering around, right? Um, they don't become about the human behind it too often. Uh, but that's what Demetis and Sharp do here with the wife of Ted Salas, uh, Ellen Brandt, um, who is kind of the, the POV character, right? She is the main protagonist of sorts, right? Connecting with the Man-Thing and going through these 
these landscapes. And the big thing that happens in this series in the first few issues is Doctor Strange reveals to us all, we get some nice strange cameos in the first couple issues, that the nexus of all realities is broken, that it is damaged quite badly after the whole Heroes Reborn, Frank and Richard saga, and that basically because of Man-Thing's unique connection to the nexus of all realities in Citrusville, Florida, um, that only Man-Thing can save all of reality, right? And that is kind of the big multiversal cosmic premise, but the stories themselves play out uh, more insular, more more focused on little slice-of-life stuff through towns, um, at least at times, at least at times. Um, this was fascinating to read. I enjoyed the heck out of it. It is a massive change of pace from the Heroes Return side of things, right? And, and yeah. that sort of retro modernization. Um, it feels like a Vertigo book, and I, and I say that complimentary, you know, because I, I think in some cases we could say, oh, it's Marvel trying to do it. Um, Dematis knows how to do that. <laughs> he has done yeah. it. <laughs> He's a part of that wave, right? So it's not, it's not imitation um, without the skill. It is, it, it's all there, and it feels it. It's kind of a bummer that this line didn't have more legs. I don't. Know, do you have any? Do you have any other sort of Strange Tales favorites or, or you know stuff from this era that you, uh, you were into? I mean, this this was definitely the highlight of the Strange Tales uh, stuff. I I really like Leonardo Malco's artwork on Werewolf by Night. The story is not quite as much my jam, yeah. but uh, it, like it was a it was a visually oriented kind of imprint, and. As you say, it's very much in the model of what Vertigo was doing, also in terms of rehabbing older characters. Um, it didn't really get much of a chance. Like, there's yeah. four or five total Strange Tales 98 characters, and then they're like, ah, we can just do this. Uh, there is something to be said for the fact that after Marvel Knights, uh, and after Marvel Knights was so successful with those, like, let's do art-focused things, let's do higher higher production values, let's do something that's actually really beautiful to look at, that yep. became the look of the whole Marvel line, and the, like the Overton window for what kind of style was acceptable, like, there was a much broader range of styles, again, starting in 98-99 in a way that there hadn't been since 83-85, to like, that kind of, mm. like, glory period. Um, but... Uh, at this point, it was kind of confined to its own little corner of the line. Um, so it lost because it folded, but it won because suddenly everything could have a real look to it. Yeah, yeah. It is It is a nice nice little imprint lost to the history of time. Definitely a fun back issue dig. You know, if you can find some, like you said, like there's the Werewolf by Night book by Paul Jenkins and Leonardo Manca, um, which is visually very interesting. I, I like Jenkins' work coming on to Inhumans with, with Jai Lee, definitely more, yeah. uh, quite a bit more than the actual narrative there. Um, like we said, these Man-Thing issues are, I, I do think they stand out the most. There was there was a solicited Satana series that I spent a while trying yeah. to find before I realized it was never published. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. I'm, yeah, that's, uh, I'm curious how much of that got done. Who was who it by again? So that was going to be by Warren Ellis and Ariel Olivetti. I think were the solicited huh. um, writer wow. and artist, and it was. And this is on the heels of Ellis at the time had written uh, Hellstrom for Marvel, sort of Son of Satan, you know, ninety. Hellstrom and also Druid, which I think is a real big antecedent of this. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what the, the story is, I actually looked this up this morning, so I was trying to figure out, like, did these issues ever come out? And the story was that the creators were promised um, that these books could exist outside of the comics code, essentially, right? You're, they're trying to do their horror vertigo thing, right? They could do right. that. And then the message came from on high as, again, Marvel's going through a lot of executive shuffle at this time, and, and ownership is changing hands and all that stuff and and the orders came down that no these books actually do have to fit the um the comics code authority and be acceptable for kids essentially uh so the satana team at least took offense to this they didn't want to read write or redraw anything um and they just pulled the book they were just like we're just not going to do it anymore i guess man thing actually was rewritten was at least the story that i read maybe some elements were changed i'd ha- we'd have to We'd have to sit down with JM <laughs> early in What's odd is that the, the first issue has the comics code seal and the others don't. And then they lose it because, yes, so then after the first issue came out, because I think Werewolf by Night, I don't think it ever has it actually. Um, it's like they yeah, reverse sure. coursed again. So just like right. like poor poor leadership, <laughs> poor decision yeah. making on that yeah. one. But that's, that is the reason I've seen for why, because I think it's like the first two issues maybe were written and drawn and just never saw publication. Um, of that series. I'm trying to think. There was one other one. Oh, I think Blade, actually. Those those Don McGregor issues I referenced, which were not... Those were canceled for other reasons. And then, kind of as we've been alluding to, like the whole thing basically gets shut down before Marvel Knights even begins um, just because it's weird and quirky and there wasn't a true conviction and commitment to actually you know, support these things. Um, yeah. Kind of a half measure. You know, to, to yeah. launch their own Vertigo, obviously, because it only lasted about half a year, which is too bad. I do have uh, one final note to add on uh, these issues of Man-Thing, which is that yeah. there is a variant cover of number three out there, which uh, I happen to have in my hands. It was a Christmas issue, and the variant cover is Man-Thing dressed as Santa Claus. <laughs> Can't beat that. <laughs> I love that cover. Yeah, no, it's it's pretty fun like they're not and that story is bonkers right that story is like it's very like early kind of what we think of now with like legion fx you know it's all taking place in in asylum and you have a character who maybe they have superpowers and they're hero fighting demons maybe they're just mentally ill um man things involved it's it's devil slayer who is one of uh, one of the writer's pet characters fine oh is he really pet characters yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, he was okay. in, he was introduced in Defenders back in the day. So, uh, no, I, I think he was was he around before that. I can't even remember. This all escapes gotcha. me now. Gotcha. That's even better then. Yeah, you get the you get the continuity. I do love it when you know you mentioned how the Maddie's like brought in you know the end of the story into like a spectacular Spider-Man annual. I do love it when writers just sort of determine that like, hey, I'm just going to continue my narrative, right? My Marvel verse through these various titles and it's like man thing cancellation be damned <laughs> like i'm gonna do some weird nexus all reality stuff i'm gonna continue doing um you know devil slayer stuff from my defenders run i i do appreciate when writers are able to carry that through it's a pretty fun time um okay douglas any final thoughts on uh on man thing on strange tales on any of the stuff we we read um any fun anecdotes or anything that you want to share about any of the, the comics today uh- I do want to note that I realized that both Man-Thing and eventually uh, Mutant X, although not the part of Mutant X we looked at, turn out to be about the nexus of realities. Mm. I don't know what that says, but um, there, there's 
there's a certain resonance to that uh, that concept that that may have been floating around again in uh, 1998. Yeah, and it's well, a, and that's something it's that's a come real up transition. Yeah, it's a real transitional moment for Marvel, uh, for Marvel's comics, for their creators, for the comics industry in general, and all the stuff that we're looking at this week is grappling with that one way or another uh and that's that's interesting to see uh from the the vantage point of 22 years 24 years later yeah for sure well and that's so our next episode part four 1998 is going to be kind of marvel figures it out (laughs) essentially and that's the launch of the marvel knights imprint you know where it's like oh okay this is what we're going to be so we're going to start with inhumans daredevil and black panther we're going to read all those again. Everybody can find all the uh, issues we'll be reading in the show notes and read along with us. But that, to me, that's always kind of felt like that's the moment where they really fully transition out of the 90s into, you know, essentially what we even now consider the modern Marvel era. You know, like that yeah. is that is the transitional stage where we get to that point. Um, and then we read the Heroes Return stuff, which is kind of doing a similar thing, but definitely more conservatively. Um, yeah. I, I've always quite appreciated Marvel Knights you know, efforts to push things um, and feel a bit more modern. But, you know, again, like I, like I said, like reading the Man-Thing series, I was kind of like, oh, like this is this is them doing that. It's just kind of like a half measure without the full support of like, hey, we've got, you know, talent that is running this that we trust and we're, we're going to put everything behind it. Um, yeah. But it's, yeah, it is, it is an interesting piece of moral history that I was definitely less familiar with. I did, uh, I, I did also really, really enjoy... Um, getting to just like just hang out and do a deep dive on any X-Men alternate reality is always super fun for me. So (laughs) I have to, I have to promote mutant X in that regard as well. Um, So, all right. So we mentioned it up front, Douglas, you've got the book, all of the Marvels. Um, Do you want to, do you want to give a quick pitch for it here for people who might not be familiar? Yeah. So all of the Marvels, a journey to the ends of the biggest story ever told is the book that uh, I wrote the Penguin published last year. It's a book about what happened when I read every comic in the Marvel universe from 1961 onward, 27,000 plus issues, half a million plus pages, and tried to read it as a single story and see what that single story said about itself about the world that it was born into about the world that made it uh and uh, some other stuff too but it it is a bunch of ways of looking at the marvel story as one big story i also uh i have a patreon of my own patreon.com slash douglas wolk um which partly funds my uh, soon-to-return podcast, The Voice of Latveria, which is you know, a, a Doctor Doom-centered thing and is actually kind of about everything but Doctor Doom and is actually also kind of about Doctor Doom. Uh, and uh, also uh, is a gateway to the 616 Society, which is a secret message board for Marvel nerds where we talk about one issue a day from Marvel Unlimited uh, and I'm on Twitter at Douglas Wolk, and I talk about comics there. I talk about music there. Every Monday, I post a thread about the romance comics that came out exactly 50 years to the day earlier. Uh, yeah, that's that's the gist of what I do. That's super fun. I love it. All right, you got you got to tell me a little bit more about the voice of Latveria. So is this is this fictional, like um like a character living in Latveria, or kind of what's the what, what's a little bit so, more about? It? So the premise is that it is a 
Cold War-style shortwave radio propaganda broadcast from Latvian National Radio. Yeah. Um, and th- that I am the host of a weekly feature on uh, the Voice of Latveria, which is the history of Doctor Doom uh, and all the comic stories that he he has appeared in, not in Marvel continuity order, but in the order that Doom experienced them, which is different because Doom has a time machine. Uh, what <laughs> it actually yeah. is is me talking to a different guest every week, nominally about some Doctor Doom story, but actually more about whatever they feel like talking about. Like I think maybe my absolute favorite episode is uh, one where my guest was Alex Ross, not the comics artist Alex Ross, but the classical music historian Alex Ross. And <laughs> okay. we, we uh, got to talk about uh, an issue of Invaders where we see a time, uh, time-traveling doom and Hitler attends a performance of a Wagner opera in Berlin. And so it is an hour of me talking to Alex Ross about the role of Wagner's music in Nazi Germany. Oh my goodness, that's uh, amazing. Yeah. Wow, that sounds it, fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So it's that I, it's that kind of thing. It has, been, check this out. it has been on hiatus for most of the last year. It will be coming back uh, this fall. I've got a couple episodes recorded already. I want to get a bunch banked before they start releasing. And I believe it is now safe to reveal that in early September, there will be a very special crossover event involving Voice of Latveria and three other Portland, Oregon-based comics podcasts. Nice. Nice. So, All right, that should be a more fun info time. about All that. Right, everybody. Yeah. 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 We'll definitely have to check that out. Very, very good. All right. Uh, so, final question for you. You were you're kind enough yeah. to come on here and talk Marvel Comics with us. You're kind enough to uh, to supply some answers for interviews that I had for Peace on Popverse about what it's like to read every Marvel oh, nice. comic. Um, what uh, how do you, how do you feel about Marvel at this point? Like your post the book, your post Eisner Award. You've done this massive Marvel journey. Are you like fatigued, or do you feel like as energized and and as kind of having fun with it as ever? Um, I thought when I was done with the book, like okay, it is time for me to read some of these other things. They're probably, it's time for me to read some prose books. It's time for me to mm-hmm. you know branch out a little bit. And then I think I turned it in on a Wednesday, and it was like you know I should really go pick up some new. Ooh, oh, there's a new X Men. Yeah, I should I should get that. Oh, there's oh yeah, I should get that. Too. I can't stop. It is it is a habit. Um, <laughs> I I and I'm, I'm I'm slapping my arm like the helpless junkie I am. Yeah, yeah, gotta have it. All right, I love it. I love that dedication. That's amazing. Well, Douglas, this has been a pleasure. I really appreciate you taking the time this morning and talking with us. And uh, and you know we'll include links to to the stuff here in the show notes so people can check out some of your work. Thank you so much. All right, awesome. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. And uh, as always, you can find the show at My Marvelous Year on social. Music for the show is by Disasterpiece. I'm Dave. Again, you can find all my stuff at comicherald.com. If you're interested in supporting the show, you can go to patreon.com slash Year to do so. Thanks, everybody, for listening, and we'll see you next year. 